Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Honestly, this case is so wild, it sounds more like a movie than real life. It's got all the plot points of a major blockbuster. Secrets, love triangles, betrayals, fake identities, blackmail, and of course, murder. In this case, the killer came so close to getting away with murder, but no secrets stay buried forever. Peter Galen Yunus met Rosanna Agostinelli in 1978 in the intensive care unit in a Massachusetts hospital where she was a nurse and he was working there temporarily as a doctor. His first impression was that she was beautiful, but more than that, she was warm, funny, and full of life. Neither of them was really looking for a new relationship. In fact, Peter was dating someone else and Roseanne was actually already married to a teacher, but Peter didn't know she was married. Peter immediately broke up with his girlfriend for Roseanne. Their relationship was passionate, but Roseanne always insisted on meeting in out-of-the-way places. This went on for several months before she finally told Peter she was married. She promised she was going to divorce her husband for him, though, which she did, and shortly after that, she moved with Peter to Dallas, Texas for Peter's career, and they got married. Only two months into their marriage, the passion was fading but the early electricity of their attraction to each other gave them hope the spark would come back. The move to Dallas was too much for their whirlwind romance to survive, though. Peter loved the Texas heat, but Roseanne hated it. Roseanne missed her family and friends back home, and Peter was busy chasing his career while she felt alone and out of place. Roseanne started to make new friends at the burn unit she worked at, but only three months in, she got pregnant. The news was a shock to Peter, who had previously been told by doctors that he was sterile. The baby was born six weeks early in 1979, and Peter insisted Roseanne commit to being a permanent full-time stay-at-home mom to care for their son, Peter Jr. Roseanne lost the few friends she had made there at work and felt completely isolated. Wait, so he was sterile and she got pregnant? Aren't we going to elaborate on that? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't able to find any other source material on that. It's likely he never questioned it at the time and just accepted it as a miracle or something. Well, nevertheless, you should never force someone to be a stay-at-home parent. Not everybody wants that for themselves, and some people need to socialize with others on a daily basis. That's not me, but I do know people who need that. (laughs) (laughs) Me either, but my husband is very much like that, and even just lockdown was rough for him. As you can imagine, by 1982, their marriage was falling apart. Peter thought a big project might help Roseanne feel happier about living in Texas. They made plans and hired a contractor to begin work on building their dream house. In November, after interviewing a number of builders, the couple signed a contract with a friendly man named Larry Ayler to construct a $400,000 house on Bobbin Drive in the heart of North Dallas. A $400,000 house in Dallas in the early 80s would cost about $1.5 million today. The crew broke ground on the fancy new house in January of 1983. Although Peter hoped designing their dream house would help heal their marriage, it only seemed to make it worse. By May of that year, Roseanne abruptly moved out to a suburb just north of Dallas. She took little Peter Jr. with her but left the family's great Jane Elvira behind. 
Peter was shocked by Roseanne's sudden departure and asked their builder Larry, who he had become close with, even taking hunting trips together, if he thought Roseanne might be seeing someone else. Larry said, no way, she's not that kind of person. Still not convinced, Peter hired a private detective and the investigator discovered some shocking news. Roseanne was indeed having an affair with Larry Ayler, the contractor. Peter confronted Roseanne, but she denied it. He then took his proof to Larry, but he also denied it. They continued to deny they were in a relationship, even when they both filed for divorce four days apart using the exact same lawyer. Once a cheater, always a cheater. It's even worse because it's someone that they knew. How horrified must Peter have been when he realized he was confiding in the man she was cheating with? That totally makes it worse somehow. Larry and Roseanne were straight up playing him. Mm-hmm. On the afternoon of October 4th, 1983, Roseanne had just put her four-year-old Peter Jr. down for his nap. She was looking forward to a little alone time when someone knocked on the door. She opened it, and standing there was a flower delivery man with flowers for her. With her guard down, he forced his way in and forced her at gunpoint to her own bedroom. A while later, little Peter woke up from his nap and went searching for his mother. He found her in her room, but he couldn't make sense of the scene he was seeing. Roseanne was lying on the floor, naked and unconscious. Her mouth had been stuffed with tissue before she was raped, strangled, and shot twice in the head. He tried to wake her, but she wouldn't wake up. Unsure what to do, little Peter frantically called his father at work. Little Peter told his dad mommy was sick and wouldn't wake up. Although the couple's marriage was effectively over, Peter rushed over immediately. Realizing Roseanne was still alive but very badly hurt, he called 911 for help. At the hospital, it was clear that Roseanne would not survive her injuries. Even before she was officially declared dead, Texas police classified the case as a homicide. Oh my god, that poor baby. I couldn't imagine the confusion he was feeling. And yeah, of course, if your four-year-old calls you, you go running over there. Right? You know what this makes me think of, though? I have a four-year-old, and we have our cell phones locked specifically so she can't get into them and mess around. We need to come up with an emergency plan. You never want to think that it could happen to your own family, but Roseanne never saw it coming either. Exactly. As soon as you can, teach your child how to dial 911. So did the police have any suspects? Well, of course, the husband is always the first suspect, especially when a contentious divorce is involved. Peter was at work during the murder and had a rock-solid alibi, but during his interviews with police, he filled them in on the affair that ended his marriage. Police believed Peter. He seemed genuinely shocked and devastated by Roseanne's death. Maybe it was time to talk to her boyfriend. Detectives brought Larry in for an interview, but he swore he loved Roseanne too much to ever hurt her. Yes, they had an affair while they were both still married, but he claimed they were in love. They both filed for divorce to prove their love to each other. He pointed the finger at her husband, Peter, who he said would never stand for his wife leaving him and taking their son. Larry insisted Peter had murdered Roseanne because she had filed for divorce. Larry and Peter both passed polygraph tests and the investigation was back to square one. There were certainly a lot of fingers pointing in many directions. Unfortunately, none of those fingers were pointing in the right direction. Two days later, Roseanne was officially pronounced dead. With no leads and both suspects cleared, it seemed like the perfect crime. 
After investigating every possible lead, police concluded that Roseanne's murder must be the sick random act of a traveling serial killer. They had no real evidence supporting this theory, but it was their best guess, and it made them feel better about not being able to solve it. The case went cold, and police moved on to other cases. Peter refused to give up and offered a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest of his ex-wife's murderer, but nothing came of it. Like in a lot of these cases, it sounds like the police just gave up and ran with the only possible explanation they can come up with. It's pretty crazy to jump right to serial killer. Like, how many unsolved murder cases did they have that they were like, oh, dang it, it's another serial killer on the loose? (laughs) Right. And it's just super lazy of them. But I would definitely still be side-eyeing Larry. I don't know. Like, what's that guy's deal? Well, friends of Larry said when he separated from his wife, Joy, to be with Roseanne, he was happier than he had been in years. Clearly, he was head over heels in love with Roseanne, but their happiness was burdened by harassing phone calls, which Larry believed came from his ex. Many of Joy's friends had no idea anything was even wrong in Joy and Larry's marriage at all. She never mentioned the separation or Roseanne. The only thing Joy did complain about was that Larry wasn't giving her and her son, Chris, enough money to maintain the lifestyle they were accustomed to. In actuality, Larry had closed their joint bank account, and Joy was reluctant to go to her wealthy parents and admit that she needed money. These two had an interesting relationship from the beginning. Larry Ayler met Joy Davis when he was 18, and she was a year younger at a high school football game in 1967. Larry was a popular football player from a modest middle-class family. Joy was the beloved middle daughter of Francis and Henry Davis, a well-to-do family worth millions. Joy was a cute, happy, and friendly girl, but a little spoiled. For example, while they were still dating, Joy bought Larry a horse as a gift. But her family wasn't willing to hand the couple everything on a silver platter. Once they got married in 1968, Joy got a job at a boutique and Larry worked at a clothing store in Dallas. They made a decent living, but Larry knew it wasn't going to make them rich. In 1978, Larry launched Larry W. Ayler Custom Builders, Inc., but Joy's father, Henry, guaranteed his credit, opening the door for Larry's success. Joy worked right alongside Larry, designing the interiors and taking care of the business details so Larry could focus on the larger construction. Together, they built a successful and respected business in West Texas. Even as their riches grew, Larry seemed bothered by the fact that he'd gotten his start with the help of his wealthy father-in-law. Okay, so if anyone in my family or my husband's family want to give me a ton of money to start my own business, I won't be bothered. I can promise you that. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I have no issues if someone wants to help me out. It's the whole toxic masculinity thing. Like, somehow he's less of a man if he needs help. It's dumb. Yeah, they seem very much blessed with the life they were given. It wasn't all sunshine and butterflies, though. Joy's friends say she was always happy and upbeat, but always seemed nervous when Larry was around. A friend of their son, Chris, said he remembers Larry and Joy being really close and loving until the boys were about seven years old. Then it changed, and Larry seemed to always be screaming at Joy. She would get a terrified look on her face and do anything she could do to please him. In 1982, shortly before Larry met Roseanne, Joy saw a plastic surgeon to perform breast enhancement surgery. 
She made the comment to the doctor when asked why she wanted the surgery, quote, If your husband is always drooling over other women's breasts, you start thinking how nice it would be if he would do that at home. End quote. According to friends of the couple, everyone knew Larry had affairs. He had a reputation for trying to sleep with every woman he built a house for. Larry even carried on a years-long affair with Joy's little sister and never tried very hard to hide it. Joy stuck by him despite his constant affairs, which is why she was so unwilling to believe the relationship was really over when he left her for Roseanne. Shortly after Roseanne's murder, Larry gave in to Joy's advances and moved back in. That Christmas, Joy and Larry attended a neighborhood Christmas party and everyone noticed they seemed closer and more in love than ever before. To celebrate their reconciliation, Larry bought Joy a new Porsche, but their rekindled affection didn't last long. Larry constantly reminisced about his relationship with the love of his life, Roseanne, in front of Joy. For several years, he frequently sent flowers to Roseanne's grave. They struggled through 1984 and 1985, then in 1986, Joy had an affair with an old high school flame. Despite his previous affairs with Roseanne as well as his long-standing arrangement with Joy's sister Elizabeth, Larry was outraged that his wife was cheating on him. Larry moved out again and declared that the marriage was over for good this time. Ew, wait, hold on. So he was messing around with her sister too? They are so toxic for each other. I get being jealous or angry at the person your spouse is cheating with, but come on. He is clearly the problem. (laughs) Though cheating with her sister, that's an unforgivable betrayal in my book. And I do partially blame the sister on that one. My sister would never do me like that. Oh, ever. They seem like they're all about getting back at each other. Girl, on June 14th, 1986, Joy asked Larry to meet her for a horseback ride at their Kaufman ranch. Although the divorce arrangements had been ugly between them, he decided to go and see what she wanted this time. He decided to bring his friend Don Kennedy with him as a witness in case his ex got crazy. Larry was immediately frustrated when he arrived at the agreed-upon time and Joy was nowhere to be found. They waited for a while, but when Joy never showed up, they hopped in Larry's truck to leave. As they came to the ranch gates, they saw a battered old Ford truck blocking the path. Thinking the driver must be having car trouble or run out of gas, Larry slowed down to help. But suddenly, the men jumped out and approached Larry's truck and ambushed them with a hail of rifle fire. Larry's Suburban was riddled with bullets, but he escaped unharmed. Don was shot in the elbow, but was also okay. Terrified, Larry asked Richardson police if the attack could be connected with Roseanne's murder three years earlier, but investigators didn't think so. Larry was certain Joy was behind the attempted murder and expressed his suspicions to police. Although they believed Larry was correct in his assumptions, there wasn't enough evidence for police to prove it. Larry and Joy's divorce was finalized later that year without further incident, and life carried on. Yeah, that was definitely her. If he would have went there on his own and that happened, okay, it could have been wrong place, wrong time. But that shit was definitely planned. (laughs) She wasn't even subtle about it. She's just like, hey, show up at this exact time and place, then oops, what a coincidence. Random people just happened to be there waiting to kill you. How strange. (laughs) She definitely did it, and I have a feeling (laughs) that she would do it again. Look, no secrets stay buried forever. Sham will tell us how the truth finally came out. 
After the divorce, Joy's life seemed to go off the rails. Some days she started dressing flashier, keeping long hours, and dating a lot. Other times she seemed frightened and barely left the house. In 1987, Chris told several friends that his mom had found strange packages in her mailbox, and when she opened it, she found the sinking head of a dead fish. The package terrified Joy and made her paranoid that someone was watching her, but she refused to go to the police. What her son didn't know was Joy was being blackmailed. It all unraveled in the spring of 1988 when Joy's estranged older sister, Carol, marched into the Richardson Police Department and asked if the $25,000 reward was still being offered in the homicide case for Roseanne. Police confirmed it was still active, and she proudly announced she had all the information they needed. She began telling them a strange and convoluted story. So strange, in fact, the detectives didn't believe her. To investigators, she seemed to be a hysterical woman angry with her sister and her husband, looking to make trouble for them. It doesn't matter if she seems like a hysterical woman. I hate that description, by the way. She's telling you she knows who the murderer is. Unless she says it was Elvis, I think you should at least look into her claims before writing her off completely. Yeah, y'all don't even want to do your job, so the bare minimum you can do is take down every possible tip. Yeah, So why didn't they believe her in the first place? Carol had no credibility with the police at that point. She was diagnosed with mental health issues in her teens and had been hospitalized for treatments in a psychiatric unit in 1979. She had frequent run-ins with police over the years, mostly when her family called the cops on her for causing disturbances at family functions. When Carol's sister was a year old, her parents took the child and started raising her as their own, claiming Carol was incapable of caring for the girl properly. It didn't help that Henry had always provided for his oldest sister, despite the issues between her and the rest of the family. He sent Carol $2,500 every two weeks, but then in August of 1987, Henry suffered from a stroke and Carol's mother found out about the payments and cut her off. Carol had never had to fend for herself before and was desperate for money. Given all of this, the police couldn't take her story seriously. D Magazine reporter Glenna Whitley, however, was captivated by the case and was intrigued by the statements Carol made to investigators. The reporter sought out to Carol to ask her some statements, and Carol happily shared the whole twisted story. Unlike the detectives, Glenna wasn't so quick to discount Carol's story and wrote a series of articles about the case for her magazine. Her articles were compelling enough to force investigators to reconsider Carol's claims. Carol claimed Joy initially got in touch with a man named Carl Noska. He was a shutter maker who had done work for Joy on house projects in the past. Carl introduced Joy to a pest exterminator named William Garland, who she asked to find her a hitman to kill her husband's girlfriend, who she called the doctor's wife. Joy asked Carol to deliver an envelope containing $6,000 to William, who took some of the money, then passed the envelope to an auto mechanic named Brian Lee Creffel. Brian took some of the money, then delivered the rest to a car salesman named George Anderson Hopper, who posed as the flower delivery man to actually commit the murder. According to Carol, the convoluted handoff system ensured that no one could point the finger at Joy in the end. That is so complex. How did she know one person in the line wasn't just going to take all the money and run? I have no idea how people would even trust someone to do what they're asked to do. Any one of them could have kept the money and done nothing. Also, who just walks up to a random worker and is like, do you know any murderers? How did that even work? (laughs) Right. And that wasn't all. Carol claimed Joy brought another job to William Garland three years later in 1986. She tasked him with finding another killer, this time for Larry. 
William went to an acquaintance named Joseph Walter Thomas, who hired two brothers named Buster and William Matthews to shoot Larry, but they failed. By the way, except for some traffic tickets, William Garland had no criminal record. In fact, of those accused of participating in this tangled conspiracy, only the Matthew brothers had criminal pasts, and theirs consisted mostly of drug and burglary offenses. Somewhere along the way, Carol and William Garland started dating and secretly got married in October of 1986. Carol claims he threatened to kill her and her daughter Michelle unless she married him. Others who knew Carol well said she was clearly obsessed with him. Carol wasn't innocent in all of this in the slightest. Together, Carol and William rented a P.O. box in Roseanne's name and sent threatening messages and the fish head trying to blackmail Joy into paying them $12,000. That's insane. None of these people were even criminals. Just regular, everyday people willing to facilitate or in some cases even commit murder for a few thousand bucks. I do not understand. Even regular old people are capable of being monsters. Monsters are literally everywhere. Okay, but now the police believe her, right? So they started arresting people. Police started with Carol's husband, William Garland. He was charged with solicitation of and conspiracy to commit capital murder. He confessed he was hired by Joy to find a hitman on two separate occasions. William confirmed with police that George Anderson Cooper, who went by Andy as the end of the money chain and had been paid $1,500 to kill Roseanne. He also confessed to facilitating the hiring of the brothers Buster and William Matthews, who were paid to kill Larry. With William and the Matthew brothers behind bars, detectives went to speak with Andy Hopper at the car dealership where he worked. But before they had a chance to speak with him, Andy made an excuse to step away for a moment, slipped out the back door, and disappeared for the next five months. But Andy wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Police caught up with him in December of 1988. After spending a few months in jail, Andy decided he wasn't going down alone for Roseanne's murder, so he gave a full video confession on February 27th of 1989. According to Andy, on that October day in 1983, he went to Roseanne's home posing as a flower delivery driver. When Roseanne opened the door, Andy said he forced his way in and then directed Roseanne to her bedroom. It wasn't part of the agreement for him to rape Roseanne, and he says he didn't know why he did it. With a murder conviction all but guaranteed thanks to his confession, he was returned to jail. It was now time to build a case against the mastermind of it all. Joy Ayler. Andy was a sick and twisted individual just waiting for his opportunity. I don't doubt for a minute that he would have raped and killed someone else if it wasn't Roseanne. Maybe he did and just didn't get caught. Typically, a rapist has other victims that never came forward. Of course they aren't going to go down alone for this either. They don't care about Joy. They probably don't even know her. There is no loyalty in what they all did. Even Carol ratted herself out to spite her own sister. To Carol's surprise, police charged her with conspiracy to commit murder as well. In an effort to make a deal, she agreed to wear a wire and try to get Joy's confession on tape. She set up a meeting with Joy at a restaurant where Joy allegedly admits her involvement in Roseanne's death. However, the background noise in the restaurant makes the tape useless. Police asked Carol to make another recording of Joy, this time in a quiet hotel room. Carol complied, and amazingly, Joy confessed on tape again. Shortly after that conversation, Joy was arrested. Joy had no difficulty paying the $140,000 bond. Then on December 27th in 1989, Chris Ayler, Larry and Joy's only child, died in a drag racing accident. Joy and Larry fought over their son's remains for weeks. 
To make matters worse, on March 21st of 1990, Joy's friend Mike Wilson was arrested by the FBI after he was pulled over with 46 pounds of cocaine in the trunk of the car he was driving, which was Joy's Porsche. Joy knew that she was most likely going to go to prison for Roseanne's murder and her ex-husband's attempted murder, so when Mike suggested they should go on the run together, she agreed. She liquidated her assets, and carrying almost a half a million dollars in cash, they fled to Canada on May 5th of 1990. Five weeks later, Mike Wilson was arrested in British Columbia, Canada, and returned to the United States, but Joy was nowhere to be found. Hold up, she confessed on tape twice? You would think she would get suspicious about why her sister kept wanting to talk to her about the murder plot. Yeah, if I were her, I would just pretend like it never happened. I mean, her sister did sleep with her husband, so I don't know why she would trust her with anything. (laughs) That was actually a different sister. But still, clearly, that family doesn't have each other's backs. So Joy went on the run. Did they ever find her? (sighs) Joy continued to elude police for a full year, jumping from Canada, Mexico, Germany, and finally settled in France with the help of her high school boyfriend, Jody Packer. Living under the fake identity Liz Sharp, Joy built a convincing life for herself in France. She rented a small but luxurious fully furnished one-bedroom villa that hugged the mountainside. She made friends, took up gardening, and started taking French classes. The locals thought she was a charming and beautiful American woman enjoying a simple and quiet life in France. Must be nice to be rich. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. In the spring of 1991, Joy got in a minor car accident, and but with no legitimate ID, she was afraid to talk to the police. She left her car on the side of the road where the accident occurred and walked home. French authorities looking into the abandoned car were led to the rented villa where Joy was discovered and arrested on March 16th of 1991. Fearing what awaited back for her in the United States, Joy attempted to commit suicide by slashing her wrist while in the French jail, but her attempt was unsuccessful. Of course, Joy was aware that when she fled to France that they did not have an extradition treaty with the U.S. in cases where the death penalty was being sought as punishment. French authorities refused to send Joy back to the U.S. without written assurances that she wouldn't be executed. With no other choice, the district attorney agreed not to pursue a death sentence for any convictions against Joy, and she was promptly returned home. With all of her money and resources, she could have gone to any number of places that had no extradition with the U.S. at all. She wanted to live out her days in French luxury. The French government protecting her from the death penalty was just a bonus. Fleeing, fake IDs, bags of money, and another country, it's straight out of a movie. Honestly, she sounds like a rich, spoiled little brat who thinks she can get rid of anyone she doesn't like by having them murdered. I hope they throw the book at her. Oh, they do. A jury heard 13 days of testimony and arguments, then deliberated just for two hours before finding Joy Ayler guilty of murdering Roseanne. Joy showed no expression as the guilty verdict was read. Following her trial, Joy was sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole. Her first opportunity was in March of 2011, and that request was denied. She was also denied parole in 2017. Her next eligibility date is sometime in 2022, and she's currently 72 years old. She currently remains incarcerated at the Mountain View Women's Prison in Gatesville, Texas. We will have to keep an eye on that and update you all on social media if she gets released. Oh yes, we'll definitely provide you with an update on our social media and website. What about everyone else that she roped into her murderous temper tantrum? Andy Hopper was found guilty of murdering Roseanne and sentenced to death which was carried out on March 8th of 2005 by lethal injection. 
Witnesses to the execution claim Andy was extremely remorseful for his actions. William Garland received a license for solicitation for murder. However, there are no current records for him with the Texas Department of Corrections, so it's possible he's been paroled. Buster Matthews pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to life in prison. He was denied parole in 1996 and a new eligibility date is unknown. He is currently incarcerated at Boyd Prison in Teague, Texas. William Matthews also received a life sentence. His parole was most recently denied in 2020, and he is presently incarcerated at Max Stringfellow Prison in Rochechere in Texas. Joy's high school boyfriend, Jody Packer, who assisted Joy with her escape in securing fake passports and other identification, was also charged. Jody was sentenced to 27 months for his crimes. She ruined so many lives. I still can't believe these average, random citizens were so willing to throw their lives away to be a part of this conspiracy. She gives me such Gone Girl vibes. It's wild. (laughs) The power of manipulation is one hell of a tool. What about the families affected by all this? On January 30th in 1988, Larry married a woman named Jan Bell. Apparently, Larry talked about Joy so often with his new wife that she was extremely jealous of her. Larry now lives in Culpeper, Virginia, and continues to work as a custom home builder. Carol never got her award for the information she provided and is furious with the Richardson Police Department. She says that they used her, then refused to pay her the award offered and wouldn't put her in the Federal Witness Protection Program. As for Roseanne's husband, Peter died in 2017. His and Roseanne's son, Peter Jr., has very few memories of his mother. At the beginning, Steph mentioned that this case sounds more like a movie than real life. Well, in 1993, a made-for-TV movie named Contract for Murder was released based on this case. It wasn't exactly a huge hit and is nearly impossible to find now. But Netflix, if you're listening, add this case to the true crime lineup. (laughs) (laughs) This tragedy could easily have been prevented if Joy had sought therapy to deal with the end of her marriage instead of resorting to violence. Roseanne's only mistake was really falling in love with the wrong man. She was not responsible for his already failing marriage. Because of Joy's jealousy, a little boy lost his mother and had to live through the trauma of finding her body. Toxic or failing relationships can be really difficult, but violence is never the solution. Know when to let go and move on. Joy had so many therapeutic resources at her fingertips, not to mention the financial privilege to afford therapy, and yet she chose not to utilize it. Even today, communities of color oftentimes don't have access to any kind of mental health resources. In an effort to bring opportunity and healing to communities of color, and especially to black women and girls, the Loveland Therapy Fund was created. This foundation, owned and operated by black women, provides financial assistance, fellowships, and residency programs, listening tours, and more. Ultimately, their hope is to contribute to both the empowerment and the liberation of communities they serve. To support the cause or apply for assistance yourself, visit thelovelandfoundation.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok at Crime and Conjure Podcast. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today I want to introduce you to green appetite. This stone is a dual action stone known for its positive use of personal power to overcome adversity. It clears away confusion or negativity, 
then stimulates logical thinking to expand knowledge and truth, which may be used for personal growth or for the collective good. Green Appetite helps overcome self-consciousness and alienation and promotes openness. It's very beneficial in easing sorrow, anger, and heartbreak, and makes it easier to move on from a relationship that didn't work out. So grab one of these next time you think about killing your ex's new girlfriend. Oh, God, don't. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.